after a bit of a hiatus, we are back here and we are ready to go. For those that may have forgotten, the Forensic Minds podcast is a podcast aimed at those studying to be forensic psychologists and early career forensic psychologists, or those that just have an interest in forensic psychology and are curious as to what it actually is forensic psychologists do. I am shaking it up a little bit today. I'm recording from a different land and would like to acknowledge the Yagara and Turrbal peoples who are the traditional owners of the land from which I'm recording from today. I also acknowledge that the interview for this episode took place on Wurundjeri land and I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. My name is Madison Riachi. I am a psychologist, doctoral candidate and early career representative on the APS College of Forensic Psychologists National Committee. We are really fortunate today to have distinguished professor James Ogloff or Jim Ogloff sit down and chat to us. So Jim is trained as a clinical and forensic psychologist and lawyer. He is the University Distinguished Professor and Director of the Centre for Forensic Behavioural Science at Swinburne University and the Executive Director of Psychological Services and Research at Forensicare in Victoria. He has worked in the field for more than 35 years and began studying and working with psychopaths in the 1980s. He has published 18 books and more than 300 articles and chapters in forensic psychology and forensic mental health. His research has been very influential in the fields of forensic psychology and forensic mental health. He has held many editorial and professional leadership roles and has received numerous awards for his work, including Distinguished Contribution Awards in Forensic Psychology from Peak Bodies in Australia, Canada and the United States. Safe to say, Jim definitely knows what he is talking about, and we are very fortunate to have him on the podcast today. We'll be talking to Jim about his career, career progression, and any helpful tips or advice that he may have for those wanting to set themselves up for a career in forensic psychology. We hope you enjoy. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Jim, here on the Forensic Minds podcast. We really appreciate your time. I've already read through your bio earlier, um, but for everyone listening, I guess just to hear from you directly, how did you become a forensic psychologist? Well, thanks very much, Maddie, for inviting me and for being able to speak to people today. Uh, well, it's an interesting and, and fairly long story, which I'll make brief. Uh, I became interested really in, in psychology um, pretty late in my training. So, for example, when I was growing up, there was uh, psychology was essentially unheard of, and uh, there were no psychology shows, nothing like Silence of the Lambs, nothing like that. Uh, so I, I learned about psychology later when I was already in university. Um, I, I was doing commerce, and in my second year, I had to do an option in a social science. And so I elected to do psychology, actually, strangely enough, during a summer class, uh, just to get it out of the way, because you would go to go to class every every day and get it out of the way in about six weeks. Uh, and over those six weeks, I found found myself just being absolutely, um, you know, enhanced by psychology and and thrilled by it, enchanted, I should say, and thrilled by it. And uh, uh, I had a goal at the time to be a lawyer, so I was doing commerce on the way to a law degree, and uh, I was interested in criminal law. So over time, I began to merge these things that is crime and uh, law with psychology so i did my honors in 
in psychology. But as for training, there simply was no forensic psychology training programs. And uh, I was in Canada at the time. And so I ended up doing a master's of clinical psychology at a university that was actually located on or a university which had a, a forensic hospital slash prison on its grounds. So a very large university. And uh, the facility I worked at had um, a very close relationship with the university where the clinical leaders were all cross appointed to the university. So it was very much a teaching facility. So I completed my master's degree there and uh, worked uh, at the same time, primarily with offenders in a prison uh, forensic mental health setting, <clears throat> pardon me. But then I actually also did the normal clinical training and, and so forth. Uh, my interest in law continued. And basically, once I finished my master's, I then went to the United States where I undertook a law degree and then finished up with a PhD in psychology. And that's where I really combined and did formal training in forensic psychology, building on the work that I had done um, working within a prison. So, so that was essentially my training. It was really fashioning together a training program. Uh, so very different uh, from the sort of expectations we have now. Mm. I mean, that's just a drop in the ocean of um, so many things that <laughs> you've done in your life so far, Jim. And I guess being someone who, um, I guess, has been practicing for some time now, in your opinion, why are forensic psychologists important? Well, I, I think they're more and more important. And I, I should say I get fairly dismayed now at our field just because uh, the, if we think about forensic psychology very broadly as the interface of psychology and legal systems, there's been absolutely massive growth in uh, a number of areas. Obviously, uh, correctional psychology, forensic mental health psychology within forensic settings, uh, also police uh courts, and of course, civil psychology as well. But what, what dismays me is that so few people who work in the field really have any formal training in forensic psychology. And mm -hmm. in my work, I see uh, this is highly problematic because forensic psychology has developed uh, so much, you know, over my career into a, a specific cognate discipline with a high degree of specific knowledge. And so it's, it's always difficult to see people essentially muddling their way through their their careers or their work without that formal background training. So I think just as we've seen a sort of explosion in the interface between psychology and law and legal systems more broadly, we've seen a growth in the need for forensic psychology. But unfortunately, we still have too few truly, uh, you know, trained forensic psychologists. And, and I think they're very important, given the complexities of the interface between psychology and the legal system. Mm. I think that's uh, very well said. Thanks, Jim. And um, yeah, completely agree. It would be nice. I've heard yeah. from lots of people that they would really appreciate um, more forensic psychology, uh, actual training programs, because um, there is a lot of interest uh, in the area. And I guess on that same topic, what do you, I guess, see as the future of forensic psychology here in Australia? Yeah, well, I think we're at a crossroads, Maddie. I think that, um, again, just I first came to Australia, actually, before I, I ever came to work here, I attended um, one of the, in fact, I think it was the first forensic psychology conference. There were a number of conferences. And 
strangely enough, I was on a panel. I had started a forensic psychology courses overseas. And I, at the time, was the president of the Canadian Psychological Association. And I was invited on a panel. And uh, at the time, I think from memory, there were 16 forensic psychology courses in Australia. Can you believe it? And I actually said at the time there were too many, because if you look at the population of North America, there were more forensic psychology courses in Australia than North America. Oh, wow. And uh, oh, wow. another panelist who I won't mention, who's uh, a prominent uh, psychology law person in Australia, took issue with me and, you know, saw this as a great need. And sadly, now, as we reflect, I think there are only two forensic psychology courses in the country. I, I, I think that's correct. And so we've seen the demise. So on one hand, we've seen the demise of formal programs, but a growth in the in the area. And of course, a complication we have, which I won't spend too much time on, is that to be a, an endorsed forensic psychologist, there are very limited opportunities for training. So I think the future is very bleak if we continue on the same path we currently have, which is a very restricted pathway to be a properly endorsed forensic psychologist. And frankly, no motivation really or inducement for people to become forensic psychologists. So um, most places I know of, there's no, the job ads don't even identify formal qualifications in forensic psychology as desirable, let alone required. Mm. For, forensic care is one of the exceptions where, where it, is, it is recognized. Uh, so I think there's like we said, we're at a crossroads. So if we go down the current direction, I think we will continue to see uh, a demise in the profession. That is, we'll see fewer and fewer people formally coming out of these courses because there are so few courses. So I think that we need to see some loosening of restrictions from APAC on how you can become a forensic psychologist through APAC and APRA. And I think the, the contemporary model would be to allow people for example, to do postgraduate training in any area of psychology, but also to do the bridging programs. We do have a bridging program, as you know, at Swinburne University, but to get into the bridging program, you already have to be an endorsed psychologist. And for a lot of people, that's, that's quite daunting. So I, again, I think there needs to be a loosening of the requirements. And I don't mean the a loosening of standards. I mean a, a broadening of mechanisms that allow people to become specialist forensic psychologist. Again, as I mentioned earlier, there's no greater time and no greater need than now, but we're really seeing uh, an inability to keep up with the demand. So, you know, if I think about the Swinburne course in which I'm involved, we typically, you know, take uh, between six and 10 students a year, and it just is nowhere near what's required. And the UNSW uh, master's program I believe is larger, but still not enough people to meet the demand. So, so this is why we see so many people working in forensic fields who really don't have the, the formal training. And if we think about psychology, you know, we would not tolerate having uh, a non-neuropsychologist do a neuropsychology job or a non-clinical psychologist do a clinical psychology job or education uh, or sports psychology, but we do in forensic, we allow essentially anybody to dabble in in what is properly called forensic psychology. Mm. And it might be um, me kind of asking the obvious here, but for people who might be listening um, who aren't super familiar with the field, I mean, what's the risk of 
what is happening at the moment in terms of um, anyone from any era of psychology being able to to dabble in forensic psychology assessment and treatment what risk is there with that yeah yeah well, there, there's there's huge risk from three three levels one is that obviously the individual people we're working with so if the psychologist doesn't have formal education training and supervision in forensic psychology and they're trying to assist somebody overcome uh, matters that often often interface with behavioral difficulties and disturbances, then they'll be ill-equipped to deal with that. Second is the advice that uh, people in our field give decision makers, including courts. So I see many, many court reports in my work prepared by general psychologists or clinical psychologists who don't understand very basic things such as the relationship between mental illness and offending. They don't understand how prisons work, what programs are like in prisons, how the health services are run in prisons. And they make far-reaching comments in reports, uh, which are often, you know, ill-conceived. And then the final risk, of course, is ultimately a risk to the community because a large part of forensic psychology, particularly in the criminal justice field, is being able to reduce offending. And we know through local and international work, this can be highly successful. You know, the research shows pretty typically that we can reduce violent offending by, you know, 10 to 30 percent by um, people completing appropriate treatment and programs. But if the people delivering the programs aren't suitably trained and qualified, then there can be no hope in, in that. So ultimately, there's a price to pay in not reducing um, that, that sort of offending in, in the community. So there are risks that the individual clients to the advice we give and ultimately to the community. Mm-hmm. And also I hear, um, I guess, the third thing being the to the profession as well um, at those three different levels that you spoke about. Um, and I guess moving away from the field in general, thinking more about what it means to be a forensic psychologist, I think we can all agree that, that it's not an easy gig. Um, and I guess in your experience, what has been one or a few of the most challenging moments that you've had in the time you've been practicing? Well, I thought a little bit about that. There, there's been a few and there, if I can just talk about a couple, I mean, the most obvious ones that people think about, I think, are where we feel threatened or where we feel that we've been in a precarious situation. And I had such an experience as a young man in uh, when I was doing a placement. In fact, I was uh, being trained and I was working in a, in a maximum security setting and I was actually doing research at the same time. And the research required me um, hooking up people to um, machines, which required uh, attaching electrodes with uh, tape. And I had scissors to do that. So I would be in a sound attenuated chamber with scissors attaching, you know, tape and electrodes to to offenders. And uh, on one occasion, this is a a great tragedy. There was uh, the unit that I was working on, which was a unit for high risk violent offenders with personality disorders. Uh, I came came to work one morning and one of the offenders had, in fact, raped and murdered another offender on the unit. And uh, that was, of course, a horrible experience. But in retrospect, the, the person who perpetrated the murder was actually someone who was in my study. And I had been in him in the sound attenuated chamber with him. And the person who was uh, raped and killed wasn't much younger than I was at the time. And of course, I think it's human nature 
I began to reflect, you know, what, what would have happened if he had attacked me in the setting. So I guess that, that was a wake-up call in some ways because I think what's difficult when you work with offenders in particular is, you know, contrary to popular belief, offenders are like you and me. They're like everybody. If you go to the cinema, I always say, if you go to the cinema when you're able to, there'll always be people who have offending histories there, you know, because it's, it's fairly common. But uh, when you work with offenders, you can get lulled into a sense of false security um, and not realize the potential danger. So that, that was a challenge to me to, to understand the challenges ahead in the work that we do. Uh, so that, that was a, a challenge. The, the other challenge, which was a little bit more, um, I think, philosophical and probably shaped my career more than anything is in that very same place that I worked, I was involved in running a this high intensity program for, as I already mentioned, high risk uh, prisoners who had engaged in serious behavior and were um, personality disorder. And all of them had a sentence of at least two years for violent offending. And uh, I was highly enthusiastic about this. It was a very novel program. We had no prison officers on the unit. It was all staffed by clinicians, uh, including psychiatry, psychology, nursing, social work, and recreational therapy. We had uh, we tried to develop a therapeutic community. We had uh, meetings every day. We had lots of different uh, intervention programs. And we, in fact, it was so popular that we had, we even hosted a conference where people came to see what we were doing. Uh, and we had um, one of the leading people at the time from Britain in there who worked in the therapeutic community field sort of endorsed this program. But uh, interestingly, I, I was I became interested in academic work, and as as you do, I scratched around for you know what can I write up and publish, and we had collected data uh, on the people coming through the program, so a group of us worked together and essentially evaluated aspects of the program, and much to my dismay, we found that basically there was no meaningful change, oh, and to, to sort of insult to injury, I. By the time I was an academic, I had a postdoctoral fellow who looked back at the data and actually followed the people up to see their their offending. And we found that not only did we not assist people, but but the rates of reoffending were as as bad or worse than when they came through the program. So that was really important to me in my in my development, because first of all, it taught me the importance of research and evaluation, because as a clinician, I went to work every day thinking I was doing good thinking I was making a difference, but of course, never really knowing. So the, the second thing that we found in that research is that our ratings of, the clinical ratings of how well we thought people were doing were inaccurate. So the, the clinician just, and I've grown to believe this, we just simply can't tell because of the, our enmeshment with clients about how they're really progressing and we need to make sure that's done objectively. So. I learned the lesson about the importance of research and also the humility of being a clinician and the importance of, of getting objective measures. Uh, and so that really shaped me to, to see the importance of research in developing what we do, but also evaluating it. And then also I think in how we give advice to decision makers, because when I look back on that, again, just as with the example of working with somebody who'd killed someone in the program, I, I actually at times felt deeply concerned because ironically part of my job was to write parole reports on people including those 
those of whom came through the program. And I would have written, you know, many reports which would have been quite positive about how well someone had done in a program. And ultimately, people were released, not necessarily just because of that. And then, as I've mentioned, as I've mentioned, when when we followed up their offending histories, they went on to reoffend. So I felt, you know, quite um, affected, knowing that I had supported the release of people who I believed had, in fact, been remediated, but who went on to to harm and damage others. So those were those were important lessons, I think, for me as, as a clinician in shaping my my thinking. Um, and I guess, Jim, how long have you, I know you've practiced for a while, but also been in research for a while. Have you always done the two together in your career or has there been a time where you've just practiced and not done research and then vice versa? Yeah, so for me, I um, uh, the only time I didn't practice was really uh, in, in 1990, I, I, I was a full-time academic. And I was in North America, where you have a, it's a very competitive uh, area in academics, and you basically hired as without tenure. So the, the the typical way is you get a contract, and it's typically seven years, and if you don't get tenure, you you you, you get terminated. So if you if you're not able to get tenure and promotion, then you leave your job. And and the university I was at, that was common. Pe- some people didn't didn't ever get tenure, and they basically lost their job. So there was a lot of pressure on um, establishing yourself. So for the first three years, I didn't do any clinical work. I did exclusively academic work. Um, so that would have been really the only period where I didn't didn't blend the two. But I found, you know, in my clinical work and my administrative work, having the research expertise and understanding was was really important. And I think I've, of course, I don't know what other people's experiences are, but I've benefited greatly by being able to investigate things um, and learn learn things, so obviously from the literature like we all do. Uh, but the nice thing about being a researcher, uh, you know, a scientist uh, practitioner, is that I could investigate things I was interested in, like whether a program works, you know, whether certain tools work and those sorts of things. So do you, would you say, um, as a forensic psychologist in our practice, that it's important for us to also be thinking about evaluating um, our work and uh, doing the evaluations on programs that we're running as well? Yeah, it's a complicated question. I'm a, I'm a pragmatist. And of course, like in my role at Forensicare over 20 years, I've helped develop the psychology service from a very small number of people to now, I think, over 80, 80 people. Uh, and, and basically, I've never required people to do research because I think you can't force people to do what they don't want to do mm. and what they might not be good at. So I think the you know my view of psychology is is pretty much cemented that we we as a discipline we are scientist practitioners which differs from all the other mental health professions. Like for example people think medical practitioners are scientists but they're certainly not. You know the medicine has very limited scientific training uh, whereas psychology um, even at the undergrad level, at the honors level, people do do a significant amount of research, and they're obviously exposed to research in the undergrad. Uh, so I think while we don't have to do research, we need to understand research, and I do think we need to, uh, you know, evaluate services. And there's a lot of there's a big question about whether one should evaluate one's own work, and I, and ultimately you shouldn't. Um, 
for all the reasons I spoke about. But we need to make sure that what we're doing, you know, is beneficial. Like, I, and in my work, I should say that over the years, we've evaluated many, many programs, and it's it's actually pretty rare that we find that they're effective. And so, you know, one of the worst examples, and I won't speak about the program, but the Center for Forensic Behavioral Science evaluated a program which had run for many years and cost, um, the estimate was about $2 million um, over time. And a number of people had gone through the program, a large number, hundreds. And again, people would have written reports to the parole board about the benefits of the program. And we found that those who went through the program had no greater or lesser level of re of reoffending than those who didn't and so uh so again i'm just such an such an advocate for learning and refining programs and even the program i was involved in that i mentioned which shaped my career that program continues to run in a different form and it's by ongoing evaluation and modification and the program now is one of the few in the world that has been able to show a significant reduction of uh of reoffending including among uh, personality disordered offenders. That's great. I'm going to hold on to that um, positive note and <laughs> then ask you in terms of what have been some of the rewarding moments in your career? Well, I have to say it's been incredibly rewarding. The um, I think of my work as my, on the micro level, that is working with individuals. And that's both as a psychologist and, and of course, as a supervisor. And so, you know, probably my, my most rewarding moments really are seeing uh, students complete and finish and, and go into their career. So I'm approaching 70 completions now, doctoral students. Uh, and uh, the first one, I think, was about 1982, uh, sorry, 1992 or 91. And a number of them are now professors and leaders in the field themselves. So, uh, you know, many people have gone on to be journal editors, test, uh, you know, developing their own tests and so forth. A lot of them are clinical leaders um, and uh, working nationally and internationally. So, so that's a wonderful experience, just seeing the field change and grow by the uh, good work of people with whom I've been able to, to work. I think the other uh, rewarding moments are seeing individual clients with whom I've worked or seen over time actually um, get out and reform their lives. And I had a really interesting experience where, um, uh, so I began working with young offenders in 1982. And out of the blue, a few years ago, I received an email from someone who said, you won't remember me, but uh, you were my you know, psychologist, even though I was a training at the time, you were my psychologist when I was at such and such a facility. And of course I did remember the person very well and he was about 14 at the time. And interestingly enough, uh, he was in his fifties when he wrote to me and he just uh, somehow came upon my name uh, on the internet, reached out just to say that he, his life had turned out really well and that he attributed some of that to, to his early contact with me. And that, that just really, made my my day and probably my year so that micro work that we can make changes in individuals lives and and we often underestimate i think what effect we can have and then of course the other is macro because I've, I've been really lucky in my my job or, or jobs over the years to shape systems so i, I developed for example 
I was the first director of mental health services for British Columbia Corrections and developed the entire mental health system there. And then I helped shape forensic care when I came and I've established and worked in a number of training programs and have, I've led lots of reviews and uh, initiatives and, and been able to see uh, systems change. And I think that that's particular, particularly rewarding as well to see systems change. I mean, there've been so many, so many examples. One, just some, so it's probably not of much interest to Australians, but uh, my very first research paper was in fact in um, people who were on death row who were children. Uh, and I, and I, so I'd worked with people who were on death row when they were children and, and wrote a, an article looking at all the, all the people on death row um, who were adolescents uh, or children at a point in time in the, in the 1980s. And uh, obviously they were all, almost all very damaged people. But then I was able to work, I was on a committee of the American Psychological Association because of my, my law background, the Committee on uh, Legal Issues. And we, we drafted a brief, an amicus curiae brief to the Supreme Court of the United States, which was cited and in fact played a role in making the death penalty for um, children and adolescents unconstitutional. So, so that was for me, you know, a, a similar achievement. And similarly, I had a role in, in, in a, similarly in making the execution of mentally ill people um, unconstitutional. So, although we don't have the death penalty here, those those sorts of um, experiences, you know, have been been very uh, positive in my own mind. Those are huge achievements. I mean, both on that macro level, but also that micro level. With the example that you gave, Jim. And I mean, there have been so many things that you have achieved and you've really uh, solidified yourself as a leader in the field of forensic psychology, both in practice and in research. And I guess as a early career psychologist, nearly finished my doctorate, <laughs> um, yeah. in your opinion, is there things that you did early in your career that you think may have set yourself up uh, for where you are now? Yeah, well, there are probably, probably a lot of things. I mean, part of it, to be very honest, is being in the right place at the right time and being, you know, energetic and, and interested in making a difference. So, as I mentioned, I was really lucky when I uh, finished my master's training and, and had been working in a prison to be able to go to a program in the U.S., which still runs and is a very well-regarded uh, program to do training in the field. It was the first in the U.S. and... and uh, when I went, it was just unbelievably wonderful. All my colleagues at the time are now leaders of the field. Um, and, uh, you know, just the learning environment was really unbelievable. So it allowed it allowed me to be an early, you know, early sort of uh, uh, mover in a field that was developing. And then really my, um, I guess how I've always worked, particularly on the systems level is by, integrating research and um, systems thinking. And so, for example, if I could just use the example I mentioned briefly of developing a mental health service in British Columbia. So I'd worked with people uh, who had done early research looking at the prevalence of mental illness in prisons. And I was then engaged by the Department of Justice there to do a review of mental health in, in corrections and make recommendations. So I wrote a report and and uh, did some research as part of that, in fact, looking at the prevalence of mental illness and so forth. And based on that, um, 
I proposed a model, a mental health program, uh, which which then I was able to, I got hired and was able to develop. And so when I started, there were zero mental health services. When I left, each of the remand prisons had a proper mental health team. So there were six and, uh, you know, there were mental health services around the, the province when I left. So so that, that was really good. And I think, so part of it is being in the right place at the right time and cementing my work with a careful evaluation and research and then systems level thinking. Uh, I think also the, for me, having a legal background proved very helpful because it provided uh, a lot of knowledge, obviously. I, I became very knowledgeable and I specialized in law, in um, criminal law and administrative law. And so pr until really I came to Australia, I did a lot of work in law, including I was a chair of the Mental Health Review Tribunal in British Columbia. So I was able to see really how law worked and systems work in addition to psychology. And I think one of the limitations of psychology is, of course, its strength, which is we focus on individuals and we don't do much systems thinking, whereas the law obviously very much thinks about systems. And so I had a really good understanding of governance and systems. And I had early experiences where I was able to see how easy it was really to make a difference. I'll give you one other example. I was, uh, I'm not sure how this happened, but when I was very young, I was invited to uh, apply for a position on the board of the Canadian Psychological Association. And uh, I wasn't even, I forget how old I was, but I wasn't even 30 at the time. And uh, I had worked on the ethics committee and uh, I ended up being a board member and probably for the first year I didn't do anything I observed, but I could see how you could bring a proposal and a motion and then you could really make a change. And so over, over many years, I was on the board for nine years, ultimately became president. I was able to, to see how we could affect change. And I've done that in a number of areas. And so, so again, it's really being in the right place at the right time and using the mechanisms available to us to, to affect change. And then I've been really fortunate to, um, you know, as, as one develops a reputation, to be invited to provide in, in, input information. You know, uh, probably the most recent examples in my life have been co-leading a review of the youth justice system in Victoria, which led to significant and ongoing changes. And then I was an expert advisor. There was an expert advisory committee on the Royal Commission on Mental Health, uh, eight of us who assisted in the work. And, you know, so, so these are really, I, I see them as an honor being able to use knowledge to affect change. So I think those are the, um, the things that, I, that have allowed me to do, do what I do. That's great. Thanks, Jim. And in terms of thinking back uh, through everything that you have experienced and know now, is there anything that you think you would change about um, your career and the steps that you took? Probably not. I mean, I think, uh, you know, I think strangely enough, in, during COVID, the center where I work, we've had for staff these every Friday a chat on MS teams. And one of them was something like that. You know, what, when, when was your happiest moment in your life? And, and I wrote, my happiest moment is now. You know, I think that things have certainly not happened by design. They've happened almost entirely by accident. But there's nothing I would really change. Um, you know, significantly. I think that 
I've been I've been very fortunate by having this uh, career, which has included, you know, individual clinical work, which I continue, academic work, both in terms of training students, which I I actually find probably most rewarding, and research. And then I've done, you know, since really since 1992, I've done leadership and administrative leadership uh, as well. So there's nothing specifically I would I would change. I would probably do small things different, but overall, uh, you know, I think it's worked out very well for me. And I think one of my, uh, one of the advantages for me is that I, as I mentioned, so I've, I've you know, done legal training, practiced law, uh, done psychology training, practiced psychology. Sometimes, as I mentioned, I didn't practice psychology and I haven't practiced law for a very long time, but um, uh, probably I would think about well, how much would I, would I, like if I was who I am now, would I actually do an entire law degree? Because probably in my life, that's something that um, overall benefited me. But interestingly, the, the program I went to after I was already, you know, there, they did develop a, a law degree for people who weren't going to practice. And ironically, I probably would have done that. But then I don't know how much I would have uh, lost by not ever having practiced law or doing things like chairing mental health review tribunal, which really, really shaped my thinking and about how we work with people with mental illness. So, so overall, you know, looking back, I probably wouldn't, wouldn't change specifics. I would maybe make some, some sort of modifications. And I guess before we kind of wrap up, um, we like to always ask um, if you have any kind of advice or wise words um, for those starting out in their careers um, as forensic psychologists. Yeah, I think rule one, get your hands dirty. I think that um, dive in, you know, get, get into whatever you're interested in. And I think like my own view, which is obviously very biased, is that I think uh, good forensic psychology is a blend of clinical psychology and forensic or forensic and neuro or whatever, because I think that um, it's having the basic skills and abilities to interact and affect change in people. You know, if you're in clinical psych with mental illness or serious problems. Uh, and the reality is that I think um, there's a bit of reticence sometimes on people to really get a breadth of knowledge and experience uh, one of the things I do think is problematic is being too too interested in a particular area when people are too young. So as I mentioned, I sort of meandered through through my areas of interest. And so I'm, I'm often anxious about speaking to people who feel like they know exactly what they want to do, sometimes in high school. Like I've, I've hosted a couple of year 10 students, you know, who felt like they wanted to be forensic psychologists. And probably like all of us, we regularly get contacted by people. So I think, you know, keep your keep your um, interests broad, uh, develop your basic skill set and then begin to hone your skills in areas of interest over time. And don't be afraid of of change. And uh, I think for me, you know, my life's been filled with change uh, in an ongoing way. And that's really benefited over time. It's forced me and challenged my thinking. So I think for someone starting out, you know, rule one, dive in be persistent get your hands dirty rule two: get really good training and however you do that that's you know obviously i'm biased and i think that attending a program like like the swinburne uh program you know the doctorate of clinical and forensic psychology that's a really 
I think it's a great program that we've had many, many graduates who've done really well. Uh, but if you can't do a program like that and you want to do forensic psychology, you know, go to another university like UNSW or you can do the bridging program like we have. I think we offer the only one. That's why I'm giving it a plug. So we have we have clinical psychologists, neuropsychologists and others who come and, and do that training even after they're quite experienced. And they all they all talk about how positive it is to really sit and focus. So so I think the one risk we run again is what I started at the beginning is I think a risk in psychology today and certainly forensic psychology is that people get involved in work where they're probably not as competent as they should be. And of course, the, the problem we have is we never know what we don't know. Mm. And so that's, you know, I think for someone starting, be very careful about feeling like, like you know more than you really do or you can do more. And I think one thing that I found being a senior, uh, you know, senior member of the field is that I can be, if I say, I can say something like, as a field, we don't know certain things, like say uh, much about the risk assessment of female sex offenders. I, I'm not degrading my own ability. I'm saying as a field, that's something we don't know about. Or, or now, you know, one of our limitations is risk assessment of, of terrorists, for example. This is an area where psychologists are being called, called upon now um, in proceedings to, to make predictions of risk and of people who are terrorists, where we don't have a very well developed knowledge base in that area. So again, it's uh, in addition to you know being enthusiastic, diving in, getting good training, it's being pretty careful about what we know as a discipline and what we don't know and uh, limiting yourself accordingly. Because I think where I see people getting into difficulty often is delving into areas where they don't have adequate training experience or knowledge. And you know you find yourself pretty quickly in over your head Thank you so much, Jim. Um, we really appreciate your time uh, here on the Forensic Minds podcast. Um, I guess that is it for this episode. Thank you so much for your time. Um, and we wish you all the best. Well, thanks very much. And, and all the best to, to all the listeners. And thank you again for your uh, invitation and for listening to me. Who doesn't like talking about themselves? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, you're a very interesting man to listen to. So thank you. Bye.